Take care, everyone. Take care. How are you doing, Mike? I'm very well today. It's like um, really hot here in Austria, but um, they said it's going to start raining in half an hour. So I'm looking forward to that. How are you doing, Chris? Like Don't the, talk about the weather. Don't this, talk this about is, the weather. This is the, the, the week by week uh, weather podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it is. But usually we hear about Ireland, Ireland, Ireland. Ireland, people, Ireland. Mike's people wanted to hear about Austria. That's why I brought it up. <laughs> it, it, it was an interesting day today, but otherwise it, it poured very heavily. The skies opened up. And it was very sunny. <laughs> uh, on a, on, you a, on a more amusing note, I have, I have a stray cat that I introduced you guys to. Um, and he's sleeping, sleeping very uh, sweetly by my side these days after a little vet checkup and we've given her a new home. So I'm good. I've got company, happy. What's, what's the complaint about? Nothing. Very nice. Very nice. Um, so let's uh, crack on, shall we? The mm -hmm. minute with today, we're going to talk about minute 18 of uh, the film Awake the Life of Yogananda. And this minute, I'll summarize, is really about science, really, and the subtle relationship between science and religion and God and all those good things, which uh, few scientists appreciate, I suppose, but uh, more and more so these days than uh, previously. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I, I love this um, concept that Yogananda keeps stressing this, like, um, his teaching is a science, not a dogma. We said it in the previous minutes. And science means, like Varun Soni says, it means you try it out. If it works, then it, it's proven. And if it doesn't work, then you move on to something else. And th that is something that was fun fundamentally missing when I was learning about religion as a child. And that is what I love about um, the teachings of Yogananda. Nice. So the first, first, Chris, I'll let you come in. The first um, scene is this Indian-looking man, and he's in a white background, and he and he says something along the lines that of uh, seeing seeing God as, as as energy or some form of energy, um, and he's kind of like affirming to the audience that you know that's fine, you can you can see God as energy, but do you think that seeing God in an energy form? is compatible with world religions? Well, I suppose it has to be, doesn't it? Um, if you're trying to look at the fundamental definition of the word, um, energy, like we are all forms of energy. So, um, you know, even to those hardened people that might think that God is uh, the um, physical human, you know, somewhere in existence, um, <clears throat> You know he, he's made up of energy, so you know I, I I would I would argue that you couldn't argue against that to too much of a degree, um, but it's definitely given a new um, spin uh, on on how we conceptualize God, which uh, in previous minutes has been discussed, and uh, I think it's um, definitely a stepping stone towards um, a higher knowing and a higher understanding of what creation is and, and God is. Um, and yeah, to Yogananda's credit, you know, he's really coming in and, um, you know, being a trailblazer to, to help us understand that uh, in the Western world. Let's, let's take um, a religion. Let's take a religion 
This is dangerous territory, Priyanka. Yeah, <laughs> where are you going with this? Which one, you, which one are you choosing, Priyanka? <laughs> let's take a let's let's take one that's quite a universal one, I suppose. That a lot of a lot of so people Catholic um, Christianity. Though. No, no. Let's let's take Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> let's take Buddhism. So in Buddhism, right? So many many people around the world consider themselves Buddhists or are in line with, you know, mind mindfulness you know that, that word that that's the popular mm -hmm. word the buzzword these days so let's take, let's take mindfulness as a concept and let's relate that to this energy uh, personification of god do you think that works mike yes of course because i feel like this whole energy concept is not really a problem with eastern religions if you think about hinduism buddhism you tell them about energy and they say yes Perfect. That's kind of how our religion works anyways. It's a, I feel like it's mostly a problem in the West um, uh, to, to, to marry those two up. Um, and um, like you, you mentioned that Buddhism um, in the context of uh, universality, and I feel like that's also something that makes Buddhism attractive. I feel like Buddhism is like a, a religion that is chosen by people in the West as well. I think Austria has like four or 5% Buddhists. And a lot of them are actually people who um, are Austrians that, that um, didn't think the Catholic Church was for them. And then they chose, they were looking around and found Buddhism. They found this concept. There's no, there's no God. There's just this higher energy, this higher being that you worship, right? Um, and that is something that they like probably because they, they were a bit burned by the Christian idea of hell and, and, this, and this God that is vengeful and stuff like that. Um, and they kind of like, like this, um, uh, and those Eastern concepts, they, they resonate with those people. And th there's very little in those teachings that people find offensive or repulsive. So that's what makes it, I think, um, universal and totally compatible with this energy thing. So people who are into spirituality, um, I can see why they would also um, find um, Buddhism appealing. Hmm. The, um, obviously not, not all Buddhists aspire to a supreme deity or, or any form of God really. They just think about their own hmm. personal transformation yeah. and leave that to the afterlife hmm. or whatever. Chris, hmm. um, would you, would, let's, let's take a different example. Let's take a different religion, a less mainstream one. Let's take paganism. So if we think if we think about pagans, do you think they would ascribe to this form of God as energy? Well, I don't really know if paganism is not mainstream, given that we have worship on the Sunday. Um, typically, <laughs> you know, I know lots of lots of mixes of paganism and Christianity. Um, but uh, so, yeah, um, the, sorry, the question was: uh, Would would I, pagan honestly, would pagans consider the conception of god as energy um, something that they could they could uh, they could resonate with yeah i mean the, the pagans would have worshipped um the sun uh would, would have worshipped uh the wind and, and more mother nature right and and um if that isn't energy in a sense then i, I don't know what is but i think um the the, the idea of energy and, and this is i think a bingo i've got a, a yuga reference um this <laughs> trying to go for one every podcast um <laughs> you know they, these these ideas of energy i guess have really more been understood um in the last hundred 
plus few years. Uh, so, you know, we, we can't, um, I, I would suggest not look too, too much with um, a critical or, um, uh, yeah, a critical eye to, to religions um, that have gone in the past, because I think quite simply, there, there hasn't really been the capability to fully grasp the grander uh, understanding of God um, simply because of our space and time reference uh, in the Yugas. But um, whether, whether it's any, you know, religion, paganism or Hinduism, um, I, I, th I think it's all being lost somewhere um, further down the line. But what I do like about Hinduism and other elements of Christianity is that there's so many stories based in analogy and metaphor that have been taken literally um, because of what I've just mentioned. Um, but, uh, you know, I heard Shiva, uh, the story of, of Shiva and how um, the, the wife, uh, forgive me, I don't know the names. Parvati. Parvati around Shiva and kind of woke him up. Uh, um, like th these are more analogies for, for the interactions of energy. Um, so I think really, um, you know, just to share a story, but when I was I was dating a girl um, uh, six, seven years ago, we were having whoa, dinner. Whoa, 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 is, isn't Barbara in the room? Uh, yeah, 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 she's, she's not going to watch this uh, reference about an ex um, But we were talking about the subject of religion and things like this, and I don't know why, it just kind of blurted out. I, I said that one day science and religion, science will catch up with religion or vice versa. And they'll come full circle and connect and find commonality. Um, and I, I really truly believe that, that it's just a matter of time before they actually, it looks like there's polarization happening, but it's really coming into some sort of full circle, in my opinion. But yeah, that's my long winded. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, go to the next scene now. Now we have in, also in this minute um, Varun Sawney sitting in his chapel I believe probably in USC but we don't know where he is but he says something along the lines of um, science as Michael said at the start of the podcast being a empirical process you know you try it out and you see if it works and um, uh, sorry religion Yogananda's religion definition being a, you know a scientific process where you try it and you see what works and what doesn't work for you so I wanted to discuss that concept really um, for example I I have dabbled in this because as you know I'm, I'm of a technical technical background so I when, when Varun Soni was asked what when he was on the show on the podcast remember I asked him how, how would you test um, how do you get some actual data for you know so for your some of your research so he's doing research in in the field of the impact of medic meditation and other spiritual elements of life and i asked him and he and he kind of inferred that he relied on a lot on self-reporting and um that didn't really satisfy my um, heart <laughs> because i knew i know for example that uh, the non the disbelievers as we discussed with um professor cluny uh, the disbelievers find it hard to take things like that on board don't they um they, they, they like to have data they like to have proof evidence you know numbers that are objective not subjective and i i so so personally i've taken this on board myself so for example you know we we have our smart watches um which take our pulse rates and 
so I took um, I took my first smartwatch um, when I when I got one from work, and um, when we were doing very lots of analytics work for different reasons, but I took it home and I started leaving it on during meditation, and and I wanted to see during my you know a ninety minute period of meditation what happens to my heart rate and what happens to my oxygen levels and things like that, and I found that um, and I shared with this with you guys I think on our. WhatsApp, our young adults WhatsApp group, and you know I I I segmented my different practices, and then for example we start with the the um, you know the counting the the twenty twenty breathing, and then we then we do the Hong So, then we do the Om technique, then we do the Kriya techniques. So I I, I proportioned all of those out in the time frames, and you you would have seen that when I changed the technique there was a slight change in my heart rate, and then it kind of went down. And it kept following the heart rate kind of kept following a trend of going downwards. And this is the, this is the kind of data that I'm personally, personally very, very interested in. Um, have you guys ever thought about dabbling or have you ever seen anything along those lines? Mike? I have tr uh, checked my pulse. I also have a smartwatch that checks the pulse and I've um, checked my pulse during meditation. And I'm, a, I'm someone who has... Um, low um, blood pressure anyways so um, but I I'm, I'm not sure I mean the pulse is an interesting indicator but it's a very gross indicator in my opinion and I feel like the the thing that you really change by meditation is often the, the state of your mind and the state of your mind is such a powerful thing you know when you read uh, in in master's writing that being happy heals the body being happy um, sends good energy to all your um, friends and you know it's like being sad does all the reverse right so it's like when you have the ability to take your your mind from a sad state to a happy state it's incredibly powerful right the problem is right now for like data scientists and and techie people it's really hard to measure this it's like Varun Soni said it's self-reported how happy or sad you are, maybe this will change. Maybe in the future, you will look at someone's, um, I don't know, aura field or something, and you can see, oh, this guy's really jolly right now. This guy, this guy looks a bit sad. Or uh, my, you, and some people, you can tell it from their face, but not everybody. Some people have this, this poker face where you cannot say if they're happy or sad right now. But I, I feel like this is, this is the, 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 the thing you can do because you can probably lower the heart rate up to a certain extent with like breathing exercises as well, I think. And if you look at people who do deep sea diving and they, they can get to incredibly low heart rates. Um, obviously you cannot go to Samadhi state. That is like, that is Zero. like uh, for the Zero. meditators. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, 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 maybe the, the time where you can actually scientifically check on this is it, is, it has started, but I wish there would be um, ways to measure this uh, in a more, uh, how do you say that, precise manner. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I applaud the attempt to doing that, absolutely. Christoph. I, you know, I've read um, a few books that really made me um, see that there is progress going on. And 
you know, what, one of the books that made me really change my thinking towards being vegetarian before I even got on, on yoga was uh, a book um, written by a guy who was inheriting uh, a whole industry uh, in the agricultural farming world. And it was a multi-billion dollar company. Um, and he, he um, talked about the, uh, the new American diet, I think the book was called. And he talked about all the science behind, you know, what it actually does to the body um, and the studies uh, in there um, on, on the mind and things like this, on, on, on your uh, emotions, emotional states, uh, when you're eating animals, the torture that happens go through. So even things like this, you know, yoga, in my opinion, uh, as, as, as I suppose we, we learn, is more than just about uh, meditation. It's about how, how you live. And everything is so subtle. And to my, what Mike was saying there, you know, certainly in the mainstream, we don't necessarily have the technology widely available to be, you know, um, uh, measuring everything that what we could measure. But there are a couple of interesting books out there that I have read um, on this subject, more um, scientific studies. One's called Vibrational Medicine um, uh, by Richard Gerber. He's a medical medical doctor. And the other one is more widely known, uh, Joe Dispenza, uh, and the book is How to Become Supernatural. And for anybody who's keen to kind of find out what some of the more mainstream ideas are, you know, are floating, um, those books I've read, I, I could recommend, they're super interesting. They study before and after meditations uh, that supposedly have machinery that can actually check the energy position of chakras um, and all sorts of really, really cool interesting things um, uh, that can look at your aura uh, and things like this. So yeah, um, we're definitely breaking new ground. It's really exciting. The next hundred years are gonna be, you know, amazing um, in that respect. And we'll change the minds of many hardened, uh, you know, uh, people who are anti-meditation and anti this and yoga. Uh, so, you know, I can't, I can't wait for more studies to come out. Mm -hmm. the, um, so if we, go away from just meditation um but but even in meditation for example the i think there's an autobiography of yogi passage where um you know in, in the footnotes they they talk about neuro neurological pathways in the brain and the synapses and, and things like that and they compared like people that don't meditate to people that do meditate and and how how those pathways open up over time and it was like you know very much increasing exponential increase in the in the meditators in the in the in the research group so that was quite interesting i thought so that's um that's something that's um, um objective and empirical isn't it the other the other thing let's let's talk about sadhana which in general so our you know our our practices our spiritual practices so let's think about for example the impact of fasting i mean people have done fasting for thousands of years haven't they and nowadays we don't doing a lot of scientific research on fasting and the impact of fasting and i think in 2016 was it yoshinori osumi uh, from a japanese scientist he won the nobel prize for his research on fasting and how how cells recycle and renew their content in a process called autophagy um where um aging processes are slowed down and cell renewal is you know increased and also um, stem cells are generated 
through the process. So that's that's really interesting to me because as you guys probably know, I think we probably discussed it, I fast quite frequently. Um, fasting today actually so once once a week I fast um, a complete fast and through uh, five days a month I do a, a raw food fast similar to um, what Yogananda um, describes or um, recommends that uh, we do you know give your body give your body a break and all that good stuff um, so yeah that, that's the that's fasting um, do you guys have have much experience with that Chris? Yeah, yeah, on a you know just to hit you back. That's why you look so young, Priyanka. Yeah, it's so useful. Uh, you know, Ooh, on that point, <laughs> last week I was fasting, and I had to go to the doctor. But no, no, I was doing my five day. No, I was doing I was doing a long, long period of fasting, and I went to the doctor um, the the next morning of my fast, and I hadn't had any. I just had a water, a glass of water that that, that morning because I just broken my fast, and the doctor. For some reason, the GP wanted to do my urine test, um, and I was like, "All right, fine." And so I did it. And then I said, "Before you like do your litmus test, test and stuff, be know that I was fasting yesterday, so the results going to be completely skewed." And she's like, "Yeah, don't worry about it." And then she did the test, and then she started panicking. She's like, "What is you're completely dehydrated? How are you? How are you standing right now? Your ketones are." Like this, to have something to eat, and I was like, "No, no listen, the, the, the results are completely invalid. I've been fasting the whole of yesterday." But she was like, "But you're not fasting now." I was like, "No, but the whole of yesterday." <laughs> and she just did not get the concept. And you'd think with with doc, you know, with this research that's going on in medicine, they'd be much more familiar with with you know the impact mm -hmm. of this. But yeah, anyway, sorry, Chris, I interrupted you. Yeah, I I, I like the tangent because. Um there's so many different sources of information and um you know we, we have to really be true to our own hearts and minds that what really um uh, sounds right to us and yogananda he does prescribe a, a routine of um you know uh, once a week uh, you know to to fast and uh, once a month uh, approximately to three days uh, and drink orange juice and i love that part because it's the vitamin c that helps replenish cells and, and grows, grows new cells so so he really you know was on on top of his, his game uh, ahead of his game uh when it came to fasting um so you know i i take my advice and spiritual guidance from him and kind of try to put aside what a lot of other let's say general practitioners might might suggest um uh, in in the western world um especially my mom she would not want me fasting any more than what, <laughs> what i do um, <laughs> You know, I, I first recommended to my fiance, I hope she doesn't mind me talking about this, I'm sure she won't, to fast. And, and the initial reaction was, you know, what? You know, I, I can't fast. Like, no way. Um, and, uh, you know, no, she, she really fasts with me and, and, and gets involved. And it makes me think of the initial resilience, let's say, that uh, our minds and habits have towards fasting. Some people could be outraged uh, with, with the idea um, because we have to eat three square meals a day, and you know, this is the habit, habit that um, we're, we're in. Um, so uh, fasting is really, um, for me, an experience that I, I enjoy. Um, my body can really go through a purification process, and um, I think I even said to you guys before, like, is this is this normal? <laughs> my heart rate can change, and you know, all these kind of things happen. And, um, but I always feel so much better for, for doing it. But um, uh, yeah, uh, I, I think um, for for the, for a lot of people, 
this is probably one of the answers to their health problems. Um, and we have a pandemic really in, um, in health issues at the moment with obesity and so on. Um, and it would be great for, for more health and, and peace to come to the bodies um, and the minds. Um, so sorry, I don't know if I answered your question there. You did, and you just did. Just a little bit. So, you did. Yeah. Uh, Michele, <laughs> would you like some contribution? Sure. I, I, um, I remember fondly um, living with you and your wife, Priyank, for <laughs> a few weeks. <laughs> and I really liked the, the raw food breakfast. Fantastic. That was uh, actually something that I kept um, as, a, as a habit for quite a long time. I must say now in Vienna, it's difficult not to sometimes eat a croissant. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I really like that. I, I do uh, do the one day fasts, but not on a weekly basis, maybe once a month. And I love, it's like good for the body, but it's also something, it strengthens your willpower, right? It's like, you go like, I fast today, your body says no, and you say, no, no, we're doing this. And then <laughs> it happens, right? And um, I, I used to have uh, trouble fasting because I used to be a complete addict of coffee. And um, I, com I completely stopped, or almost stopped drinking coffee, at least coffee with caffeine. And that made it so much easier. Like I, I remember fasting, um, not having my coffee, getting a headache, and that was always annoying. Um, and yeah, you feel so, so good afterwards. The next day, your body is so happy. Your body feels like it's, you would think, oh, you like in after, according to traditional medicine, you would say like, you did not eat, you must feel weak, you feel, you feel bad. But I wake up in the morning after a fast, I have more energy than ever. And mm -hmm. I, and I, and I feel like my body is like using this energy to, to um, like repair things, do good things that it otherwise wouldn't have the energy to do. So, because I feel like um, our digestive system, it takes a whole lot of energy. Every time we eat, we draw on uh, our body's energy. And if we give him a break for a day, we give him so much time and uh, energy to work on itself. So that's fantastic. Can I ask a question, Priyank, mainly directed at you? Is in India, is it a, <laughs> it's, not, it's not a hospital, it's not a hospital fast. <laughs> uh, in, in India, is it, um, I guess, common for people to fast? And is this part of the culture in, in Indian tradition? And is it taught in schools? Like, is it different? What, what's the difference in the Western world? Very much part of the culture. So you probably know that Indians and, sorry, Hindus, I should say, follow the lunar, lunar calendar. And uh, on the lunar calendar, based on the position of the moon and the various planets, um, every 14 days, it's, you have to do a fast. And the fast is different for different um, types of people. So, you know, my, we talked about just now, you, you're going to advising, you know, have orange juice and ground nuts for those people that, you know, need that kind of thing. Other people have absolutely nothing. Some people would have just water. Other people would have just one meal in the evening. And then there's this whole group of people them and the, the Sanskrit word was, was falahari. And then over time that's become Ferrari over the last uh, few hundred years. And then there's this whole genre of food where you can have that during fast. And what, what it basically means is you can't have grains 
so you can have you can have different other things like um that aren't grains but that food is actually really really tasty and then like, like a low carb diet <laughs> something like that but then that food is really tasty and then it's, it's sometimes it's fried and things like that so it's like then it becomes this like people look forward to this day because you get this food that you don't normally get and then you like pig out and like, you're really going away from the purpose of the fast and so it's like degraded over time but in the in the purest you know the pure sense it's still very much um, very much part of the culture and it's active to different degrees in different households and to people at different stages of their life as I've just um, uh, mentioned. The story of the Buddha is one that makes, when I think about fasting, I think about, you know, the Buddha, um, and uh, yeah, correct me on the details here, but, um, but he was he was a very keen um, faster, and uh, I think was, uh, there was a certain name for, for this type of individual back in the day that would go without eating, then people would feed him, so he wouldn't actually do any preparation for cooking himself, and people would see, you know, him in this entourage walking through a town spiritual um uh, on a spiritual endeavor and they would come up and give them food and that used to be the way it, it was um uh and uh really when, when buddha came, became enlightened i think the first words that he said was something like you know let's eat mm. um because he had been so long in suffering you know without food and he realized what it became enlightened like there's no there's no need to, to suffer um, mm-hmm. yeah, in that way, which I thought was really cool. <laughs> so that's yeah. my attitude. I'll, I'll fast, yeah. and then after I'll be like, let's eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sri Yukteswara said um, he advises in the autobiography like um, of, of people that do extreme fasting. Where he said, um, or throw, throw the dog a bone, or you know, throw the, mm. throw the body some food. You don't need to be so harsh with it. It's crit- it's important, but you don't need to make it the, you know, make it a religion, as it were. Mm-hmm um yes so um yeah let's let's go to the next scene now so the next scene is a fantastic scientist by the name of dr anita goel so she's on the she's on the stage and she's um she's essentially she's in she's in her office and she's essentially she's talking about the link between individual consciousness and cosmic consciousness and uh, merging of the two in in states of meditation and other other spiritual practices and it's she's you know we've we've done some research I'll play you a video of her she's an absolutely fascinating purpose person but before we get into that let's 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 analyze her her what's what's in her room so in her Mm. room there's um there's like some molecule uh, looks like DNA and um on her screen it says probing a single molecular dynamics of the DNA polymerase motion. <laughs> you obviously probably don't. Chris, you haven't seen that bit, but try and guess what that means. Go on, Chris. Probing a single mole- molecule, <laughs> probing a single molecular <laughs> dynamics of the DNA polymerase motion. Complete hospital pass. <laughs> this, this is probably the worst hospital pass that we've ever done. <laughs> Um, you know, I'll I'll uh, I'll, I'll have a stab at it. Is it is it, is it the movement of the DNA strands, the, the way the the way it um, coils over and then? Ooh, getting getting something, close. Something like that. Getting close. Um, we'll discuss what it means in a second. But um, yeah, there's another poster which says on the right. It's got like a banner poster which says, "Where little things make a big difference." 
<laughs> we don't. We can. Uh... That 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 kind of makes sense because above that is a circuit board, right? <clears throat> and that I feel like in that context makes a lot of sense because all the microchips they are miniaturized and. Yes. Yes. So yeah. Anita Anita Goel is um is a leading scientist in the field of um, biology and physics, as it were. And she's done lots of research in, um, she started, uh, I think she start, started at Stanford, went to MIT and Harvard. So she's at the very, very top of the, you know, academic um, excellence, really. Let's, um, let me show you some clip of her and then you can see. So this is a, this is a talk that she did. Here you see, uh a picture of the Deep South in the early 1970s. This is where I grew up and spent a lot of time meditating in nature. And one of the things that struck me as a child is, is the underlying unity in nature. And I just became convinced that there has to be this deep underlying unifying framework in nature. And then on one hand, I love physics and mathematics. On the other hand, I was exposed to the problems of biology and medicine. Uh, and the deeper I went into the study of both, first at Stanford, Harvard, MIT, and all such nice places, the more aware I became of just how deeply disjointed our pursuits are of the physical sciences and the life sciences, and became even that, more that much more convinced that we have to bring these together at a fundamental, new, unified way. And I was happy to see that at the end of his life, Albert Einstein came to a similar conclusion. So it turns out that <clears throat> most of our modern physics was developed in the context of inanimate matter. It really didn't come to terms with life, living systems, and most of our medicine today is practiced at the level of chemistry and molecular biology. It doesn't really deal with how physical forces, physics, things like mechanical forces, electromagnetic fields play a role in physiological processes. And a uh, hundred years ago, somewhere near here, not too far from Berlin, Albert Einstein gave us a framework in modern physics that put matter and energy on some sort of equal footing. And I came to the conclusion that in order for the mathematical machinery of physics to come to terms with life and living systems, we're going to need an equally, if not more, profound transformation in modern physics where we put matter, energy, and this thing called information on some sort of equivalent footing. It turns out that living systems are fundamentally open systems. They exchange matter, energy, and information continuously with their environment. So 20 years ago, I fell in love with this thing. These are little nanomachines that read and write information in DNA. And it turns out these little molecular Xerox machines process information embedded in their environment to modulate how they read and write the information stored in DNA. And my lab over the past several years has developed advanced capabilities to probe and precision control these nanomotors as they read and write DNA at the single molecule level. And it turns out that this provides an experimental laboratory for us to study in real time the exchange of matter, energy, and information, at least on the nanoscale. We have all... So we'll, we'll stop it there. So I'm sure you were extremely fascinated by that. So Chris, so now having seen what you just saw, can you describe probing a single molecular <laughs> dynamics of the DNA polymerase motion? I'm even more confused. Let me let me try and uh, summarize it. So what she's what she just what she's just shown was a DNA 
enzyme um, and she's basically shown a scanner and she, she, she's done some research where if you stretch this enzyme, the scanner will go, start going really slower. Yeah. So you stretch it more and more then it stops and then you stretch it even more then it goes in reverse. And so what, what, lots of research she's been doing in this field and she's starting her own company and she's basically able to read, read DNA and also to write DNA. So if you think about what that means, uh, DNA is like, um, you know, the, the nu- what, that's the information that defines everything about us. And, you know, it's in the nucleus of all of our cells. So in, her, in the application of her research, so you might have a drop of blood. And, you know, in Africa, in, um, for us, for example, if we were to try and get a test for HIV or something like that, it might take, um, you know, ages for, for the conventional scanners to, to tell us the results. But here she's saying she's developed the link between physics and biology such that she, she can read the DNA through, your, through her mobile device with the drop of blood or saliva and then tell you everything about you, basically, just, just from that instantaneous reading. And similarly, she can also write DNA. So you can now imagine the implications of this is very, very profound. And this is now where I think the link is for the Wake film and for us in meditation. So you can see that she started off the talk where she was saying she used to do a lot of meditation and she used to contemplate these, these problems in her head. And you know, if, if, this, if it's possible for this to happen with these devices, then clearly if we are, you know, we generate our own, we, we can do this ourselves through our own practices. We can change everything about us. We can, you know, we can, if we're really perceptive, we can really go within and read everything that this body has, every, all the memory that we have had in the past, all that kind of stuff. Um, Mike? Um, absolutely fantastic that she, um, like she, you have to imagine she's a physicist, right? She's into probably Newtonian physics, quantum mechanics. And then she said she had a little look into biology and it kind of, um, fascinated her that biology has such complex systems and and we have those two sciences that are on the same scale they're both like we look at them under the microscope and somehow we haven't married up the two into one and this is like when you read um, now I'm gonna reference the yugas for a change um, <laughs> because Sri Yukteswar he says one of the things that we will discover in Dwapara Yuga is the plant kingdom. And I'm sure we will go in there and we will discover that, um, of course, we know plants are alive and we will see how incredibly complex plants are. Much, I feel like it's more complex than we imagine it is. And I feel like oftentimes in, in the physics world, we go like, oh, we built this incredibly complex computer and then 20 years later, we, we figure out that plants work in a similar way, but only better, right? So it's, I feel like um, a lot of things we, we find out, life is already technology, technology that is more advanced than the technology we produce right now. And learning from it is the right approach rather than saying we, we know how it works. And um, I feel like, like the idea of having like a little robot that alters our DNA um, is like a way to play the to 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 
um, add the DNA to our toolbox, basically, because I feel like those kind of things are so powerful in healing our bodies. I mean, of course, I'm, I would be the first one to say the way to heal your body is, is, a, is a strict diet, it's like eating the right things, um, meditate, meditating and everything. But I'm, I'm sure there is still room for other kinds of medicine if you have some kind of disorder. And I feel like our DNA is going to be one way that will show us how to heal diseases that we cannot uh, heal right now. Mm. I think most of these medicines come from plants, well, you know, the majority come, come derived mm. there already, right? And uh, yeah, we, there's a lot of plants undiscovered uh, in the Amazon rainforest and things. And then, yeah, I, I, I think to, to your point, something just popped, popped into my mind, I suppose, um, you know, all this lack of investment in, in uh, discovering, um, you know, more realities behind, let's say, plants and um, yoga and, and meditation. It's really because the priorities aren't there, in my opinion, and and maybe the technology at the moment isn't, isn't there as well. But um, when we shift priorities to one of like, you know, dominance and technologies tends to be driven through the military. So it, and then it trickles down from there, like laser technologies and things. Um, and, and that's a sad reality that we we live we live in and we've lived through for millennia. But as our priorities change, you know, going through the yogas and uh, you know um, looking for more um, love and understanding and, and building rather than destroying and separations, then then I think we will you know hopefully switch towards that way um, and, and start to unlock these secrets. But this is obviously a great um, great step towards it. And, um, Goes, goes beyond my my puny mind right now, but uh, uh, I, I liked how she had a picture of um, Einstein in the background there as well. Um, yeah, yeah. I, got, I got one more controversial thing to add to that. Yeah, if course, I may. Yep, go for it. Um, I really liked. Uh, she said in a um, in in one of her slides in the in the same talk, she said that our medicine today is largely based on chemistry, and I feel like. Um, this is because um, we have this capitalist system that wants to um, put money into researching a cure, but it has to be a cure that you can sell. Like it cannot be fasting because fasting is not something you can sell. It has to be a pill that you give to someone and, um, and that heals somebody. And this is something we need to get away from. Um, I feel like um, our investment in medicine is actually very high, but we invest in the wrong things. We don't invest into what are the effects of diet, what are the effects of maybe, like she says, electromagnetic fields on our body. We, kept, we keep looking for new um, compounds, um, chem chemical compounds that we can put into a pill, swallow and heal ourselves. This is basically our one-dimensional medicine and I feel like this is something that will need to change. Boom. The um, one thing that I wanted to, um, one th can you guys hear me? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to add was that, you know, in, in, in yoga, this is obviously very much possible and we read numerous instances of, of it in the autobiography of a yogi, this kind of this kind of thing but you know just because it's possible for yogis we obviously therefore know that they're doing something with a science aren't they 
So now we see the scientists actually coming up with a way to do it through developing the intellectual method of forcefully or mechanically doing it. Something that you would do intuitively if you were, if that was within your capability as a yogi. Now science is now actually doing it through the, through the crude or the gross way. And obviously this, this way may take billions of pounds worth of research and hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of years worth of collective knowledge where the yogi may realize how to do this within you know a second of his um of, of thought or practice yeah. or you know coming coming to him i i could i couldn't agree more uh Brick. and you know people see science as a religion and, and almost like a teacher in, in a sense but life is the teacher you know life should be the religion if anything life is um uh, you know, I don't need science to tell me how to breathe or walk or, or, or do anything that I do. I just, you know, do these things because we're gifted uh, through through having life. And, um, you know, yogis to me just connect with that life and sit with that life and, and look at that life. But, uh, yeah, I mean, science is the intellectual uh, life, isn't it? Just dissecting everything up and, you know, to under, uh, yeah, to, <clears throat> to, to kind of go down that road. It's, it's endless, right? And, um, to, to what to what end? Uh, so um, it's it's fine. It's bringing us great um, comfort. So I'm sitting in a nice chair made by different materials, all you know through technology, with, you know science. Um, speaking to you through a laptop and everything, but uh, yeah, we need to get a balance right, I suppose. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to the next scene. Then we have a certain brother Chidananda. And the certain brother Jidananda, he before we talk about him, let's talk about what he says. So he says something linked to what we were just talking about. Yogananda's teachings could, he was really saying, can only be received now in this present day and age, you know, in this dawn of science, you know, where we're talking about molecules and atoms and everything is energy, you know, and everything is that that is everything is 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 kind of encapsulated in that um in that statement. So the, the, the lexicon, the terminology that Yogananda used to use wouldn't have perhaps worked 200 years ago because humanity wasn't here in, in our state of intellectual understanding and appreciation and aspirations, really. Um, does that resonate with you guys, Chris? Yeah, it, it does. And I love the, um, the imagery that they used in uh, at the end of this minute where it was, uh, I think, a man standing um, maybe on top of a building with this, you know, some dramatic sky and clouds uh, overhead and it dissolves into, you know, a, mm. a million trillion different particles. Uh, and I, th I think it really captures that, uh, what Chidananda, Brother Chidananda was saying. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, th this, I, I think this is um, more common in the Hindu uh, scriptures and teachings that, uh, we, this idea that we are all one and part of the same uh, being, essentially, um, it's a derivative of that, isn't it? And, and we're coming to understand it in a scientific term now that you know science is caught up with with that kind of speech. Um, I, I remember my fiance's dad say, talking about the subatomic particles, and you know he was really energized, saying, "Well, what what is really between us? And, you know, what, what actually separates us? Nothing, you know." Um, I, I think it's once you kind of see that for what it is, it's such a liberating um, concept and idea to, to think that we are all one part of one being in this gross material world. 
um, in, in that sense, uh, manifested in seemingly different bodies and all sorts. Um, you know, we, we, we all exist in this, in this uh, reality. So yeah, this, for, for this to be used in, in uh, the Awake documentary in the way that it has done is going to open up so many people's minds to this uh, more fluffy kind of concepts of, you know, oh, you know, everything's love, man. Everything's one. <laughs> um, new agey kind of stuff. Uh, it really grounds the idea uh, into being for me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you have to imagine the predominant uh, mainstream religion in the West is uh, Christianity, and Christ came in the lowest not the lowest part, maybe 500 years away from the lowest part of the Kali Yuga. And to, to be frank, he had a really hard time describing um, what was going on in the body at this time, right? It was like the, 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 um, the minds of people, they must have been very materialistic as is normal in this age. And then you are trying to explain to them the same message that Yogananda brought, God is in the spine, right? But now you trying to say it, they, they probably didn't even know what a spine was, right? They didn't have a lot of knowledge about biology at this time, I'm guessing. Um, and then you, you just have to say it in metaphors. You, you know, you go then on and say, like in Revelations, um, St. John talks about the seven churches and the seven locks. And I don't, I think talking about chakras would have blown people's minds. They would have gone like, what is this witchcraft, right? So mm -hmm. it was, it was a, a different time. And then now we are in this age of energy. And now we have in the West, this Christianity that is full of those metaphors that we don't understand. Um, and so I feel like that was one of the reasons why it was so necessary that someone like Yogananda comes and sets the record straight explains to us what Christ meant back then and also brings his own teachings that kind of uh, makes sense to us and the kind of a teaching of the age of energy. Yeah, I'd like to expand on what you just said, Mike. Um, so we, we think about um, the most primitive of um, Ten Commandments. Let's say Old Old Testament. Mm -hmm. We say we you know one of the one of the commandments is thou shalt not kill. And then Christ, Christ made that slightly more um, deeper, and he said, mm -hmm. "Treat thy neighbor, you know, as thyself." And mm -hmm. that was that was then. And that now we're coming to a stage where people are accepting, actually, thy neighbor is thyself. Mm -hmm. So you don't you would treat him as yourself because he <laughs> is yourself, and there's no way you would kill him. So that that kind of explain it kind of shows you the state of consciousness that was needed at or the teachings that were needed for that state of consciousness that was back then that had 10 co commandments to what it is now where we can appreciate that you know we you are you know Ramana Ma Ra Maharishi someone asked him um, um, how shall I treat others and then Ramana Maharishi said which others <laughs> so you know there, there are no others you know, you are the, the others that you think that you, your illusion is telling you. That's just, it's just an illusion. They are yourself. And it, it's um, testament to, and pardon the pun, uh, to, to those teachings back, you know, in the, in the, the Old and New Testaments uh, as to how well they've lasted and how well they've done. They've really 
spread um, you know, around the world as teachings and really taking hold. And even though people might not really understand them, they still hold on to them as truths. They still you know, talk about them in the ways that they can understand them for that time. And it's lasted many, many, many hundreds of years. I mean, that's, you know, th this is really significant that there's something beyond these words that they speak that they know is true, but they can't conceptualize it yet. Uh, and and that's a real testament to to, um, to to you know Jesus and others that have come come before him. Uh, and I think you know with Yogananda, what what he said, and we've said it time you know times before that it will stand the test of time, and and will be breakthroughs um, that people will look to Yogananda as really somebody who came and broke new ground uh, in in the Western world. So, yeah, next yeah. 2,000 years, let's see. Something that we glossed over um, that uh, Anita Goel said was that, that concept of, um, you know, this physical consciousness and the play of that divine consciousness, or we call it Christ. In Yogananda's terminology, we call it Christ consciousness, and then beyond that is the cosmic consciousness. And this play where, like, you, the kind of there's a play between the two and there's a medium where they kind of interact and you know one becomes the other etc um that that you know that's something that we're really taught a lot about in detail in Yogananda's writings um and we obviously part of our sadhana is to experience that you know that Christ consciousness within us and that cosmic consciousness that is beyond all creation and that's pretty much what science is also trying to do but again in the crudest crudest way possible <laughs> whereas we're doing it at the well not we the, the yogi does it at the most sign the most um, intuitive and the quickest quickest way possible without necessarily needing to dot all the i's and cross all the t's but that, that play of um um consciousness from one to the other two i just wanted to get you guys to to feed back on that um that that line that anita said do either I, of you have any comments yeah go on mike yeah yeah i find it amazing that someone who's a physicist talks about cosmic consciousness because that's where we need to end up being this is kind of the the scenario we want to be in because um this is i don't think this is currently happened or happening that someone who is go going regularly into Christ consciousness has like electrodes on his head or something and you can measure what it does to his body but once we understand on a physiological level what it does to us I feel like then our science will figure out that this is actually the goal for us this is where we want to go and not just some people this is where we all should be heading and it would turn science, medicine, all our fields of research into focusing on that one goal. How do we quicken our way to cosmic consciousness? Because, and when, once we are there, we have this civilization that worships God and tries to help everyone achieve um, experiencing him. I've, I feel like this is, I'm not sure if this is too high of a utopia goal um, but I feel like this, if we were there, then we would, we would be in this age where we're in, but we would be going in the right direction. I feel like this would be a fantastic scenario. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, the cyberpunk reality is probably closer to us right now. But... <laughs> <laughs> 
I agree with you. Yeah, if all attention was put on that, it would be um, probably a few thousand years away from that. Uh, maybe, but yeah, it's going to be a lot more niche, I think, until then, right? And um, you know, just to go back to you know Krishna's followers and Jesus's followers, he had twelve followers. You know, it wasn't like he was commanding, you know, vast swathes of the population at the time. Um, even for his the gravitas that he would have had. Um, you know, still people were very skeptical. They didn't want to go against, um, you know, their their ruling kind of class at the time. Um, and it's it's similar now. You know, I, I don't think it's all that much different when you have you somebody like Yogananda, for instance, coming with such revelations. Um, in my opinion, people for their own reason will get stuck in uh, their dog dharma and dogma and and, and maya. Uh, so um, yeah cycles of life but um I, yeah I, I think uh, what's been said here uh, in in the uh, await um documentary is is really nice to see and um i think they then hit the nail on the head with this minute for me uh trying to trying to grow on the information uh, trying to bring it into this century because so much has changed in the last hundred years you know what yogananda has said 100 years ago is is playing out to be true and so I think they did a really good job bringing somebody in with a stature uh, 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 that, that we're seeing, you know, from Harvard University. Uh, they've got the names, they've got all the names in there. So it's it's fantastic, uh, fantastic job on their, on their part, on the director's part. Excellent. So we can now talk about Brother Chidananda, who, of course, is the president of Self-Realization Fellowship and Yogoda Satsanga Society in India, so he's the head of our lovely organization. But Mike, can you tell us some more about him? Yeah, let, let me read the text about him. I'm gonna read the first paragraph and then we can talk about it a little bit. Um, it goes, uh, born in 1953 in Annapolis, Maryland, Brother Chidananda first encountered the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda and his Self-Realization Fellowship in Encinitas in the early 1970s when he was a student of sociology and philosophy at the University of California, San Diego. Drawn by a long felt interest in India's spirituality, he visited the SRF Ashram Center in Encinitas, just north of the university campus, which was a familiar landmark for many of the students living in the adjacent coastal communities. Such a, such a good scenario, right? Yeah, like you, um, you're interested in spirituality and your university happens to be right next to Encinitas Ashram um, and the Hermitage. And yeah, that's how, I guess that's how master places people sometimes, right? Feels like you, you're gonna be president of SRF one day. So I'll put you in this university right next to Encinitas. Mm -hmm. um, and then also it's been the 1970s, which I guess was a different time there. It was mu a much smaller organization. And I feel like the, the pressure on people wasn't as high as it is today, where the, 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 the pressure for money, for performance, for paying rent, for get, getting a good job, I feel like. Um, and then he, he was studying sociology and philosophy. That is like, um, something that someone would study if he cares about human beings and then he was also interested in spirituality so I feel like it's a story that really 
kind of master already placed him in, in the right place in the beginning. Yeah, so um, I think Brother, Brother Nandamoy says um, in one of his talks is um, many of us or each of us are handpicked hmm. by, the, by the guru um, to, to especially to do important work such as um, such as lead the organization of self-realization fellowship because he wasn't at the um, he wasn't when they were filming this film he wasn't the president back then. He was just mm. uh, one of the members of the board of directors. Right. And um, yeah, in on that concept of handpicked, um, they also um, also read one of Brother Shradananda in the recent Guru Purnima talk in from YSS. He was saying that um, uh, Sri Dayamata and Sri Mbrinini Mata, the second and third president of Self Realization Fellowship, they were so Guruji took them from the astral took their souls from the astral plane and said, okay, I need you for this incarnation. You'll come, you'll come with me and you'll find me and then we'll, we'll, we'll do some stuff together. And in, in that process also, you'll no doubt relinquish some of your, the last vestiges of karma that you may or may not have. Some of that he didn't say, but I'm, I'm filling in the gap, <laughs> filling in, filling in yeah. the gaps in my own uh, limited uh, understanding. You know, I, I just, I didn't know this before, but I, I googled Brother Chidananda and I saw a really uh, lovely um, definition here on Wikipedia. Chidananda means bliss through the infinite divine consciousness. Uh, yeah, didn't know that. That's, that's lovely. And it really, when, when you listen to his voice, his voice is so soothing um, and, and I, I guess so deep, you know, there's there's something, something great uh, about his voice I, I'm always attracted to when I hear it. Um, and of course, I think we all were there when I came to visit um, the London uh, Centre, um, and, and that was awesome to see him there. And very tall figure, isn't he? And, and just yeah. great stature and presence yeah. about him. Yeah. Um, that, it was packed that day, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. I remember Priya Priyanka and I were holding the doors, so like she was on that side, and I was. We both opened the doors as like two twin devotees. It was very nice. With similar, with similar names. <laughs> so, but uh, going back to your point about Chiddananda, so that derives from, you know, in the last podcast, we talked about the concept of God as Sat Chit Ananda. And the word Chit in Sandhi, what becomes Chidda, Chiddananda. So that is the same word. So ever existing, ever conscious, ever new bliss consciousness is in that name. And it's a certainly a very apt name oh, for man, brother, yeah. brother, brother Chiddananda, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes, go on, Mike. Sure. Yeah, I guess his name um, kind of turned into his mission as well, right? <laughs> so you have someone called Chitananda, and then boom, he becomes president of, <laughs> of SRF. And um, I'm not sure if this is um official policy or something, but I think Guruji said at some point that someone who is president of SRF will always be in cosmic consciousness or close to it mm. don't quote me on that that's super informal information but i something I, I recall something along those lines yeah 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 so, there we go um, you got second and third paragraph potentially should right? i go yeah I'll do your go. second one perhaps so we i ended on that he visited the ashram in its needles and then some months later he happened upon a copy of the autobiography of a yogi and was instantly captivated by the great wisdom 
and divine consciousness that spoke from its pages. During his last year at the university, he enrolled for the SRF lessons and began entering SRF services in Encinitas. He was deeply inspired by the talks of Brother Anandamoy, who was the minister there at the time, and also benefited from Brother Anandamoy's personal counsel. It was in this sacred environment, so permeated with the vibrations of Paramahansaji, that he was profoundly influenced by the monks and nuns living there, and the desire to devote his life completely to seeking God and serve the work of Paramahansa Yogananda as a monastic disciple was awakened almost immediately. Fantastic. Super. So, yeah, those were the days, right, when you were in Encinitas and you had Brother Nandamoy as a minister and you could get personal counsel from him. And I can see, um, and it says so permeated with um, vibrations of Paramahansaji. Um, that was also a different time, right, in the 70s. Um, Yogananda left his body in the 50s, right, it wasn't that long ago. It was like 20 years ago. So I feel like he was like, he had this perfect environment there to be drawn into um, SRF and then also developing the wish to become a monk. Yeah, agreed. Getting attacked by my stray cat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Finally starting to behave like a stray. Well, either that was very, very <laughs> it's very interested in our discussion with brother about brother Jidananda. Perhaps yeah. we have a, another name for the cat. It, wants, yeah. it doesn't want that name that you previously gave it. <laughs> no, it was yeah. Jid, Jid, or perhaps Ananda. Um, you know, I, I listening to you, Mike. Um, yeah, I, I'd love to hear how he ha how uh, Brother Chidananda happened to come across the autobiography of a yogi. Because there's, these little stories are just, you know, very interesting. I, I find that uh, they just land in somebody's lap. But um, yeah, uh, awesome, awesome. Yeah, uh, that he, he just took to it straight away. Yeah, I heard the story once where someone was in a library trying to get a book and then another book fell on his head and it was the autobiography of a yogi. So, those are the perfect stories. I, I think Brahmajari Jason or someone said that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a really good good point. And um, I think, um, Mike, you previously made this point, like Brother Jidananda is also very in touch with um, modern trends. Like he, for example, started the whole online meditation center like pretty much one year before and you know the online lessons pretty much one year before the pandemic and then look how much the world has made use of those things so his leadership has been different because um Sridhar Mata and um, Sri Malini Mata were I wouldn't say old-fashioned but certainly you know they, they were later on in their years so they they came with you know they're direct disciples so you can imagine the weight of experience and uh, pressure that they would have to to lead the organization and brother Chidananda had a pretty a, a more of a blank canvas didn't he and that's why he can do some of these innovative things and SR, self-relational fellowship has changed so much under his uh, tutelage over the last um, three or four years hasn't it yeah he he definitely made everything being available online uh a priority when he when he became president and it was like you said the timing was perfect the timing i mean that is the kind of timing that you that you um cosmic cosmic timing you might say yeah i mean 
Fantastic. I mean, if imagine we were in the pandemic and nothing would be online, mm-hmm. then because those things so, take time, right? Like people sometimes think, oh yeah, they do it online and it was all so easy. I'm sure there's so many lay disciples who put so much work into this, took at least a year to put everything together. Um, like from, from uh, experience of um, serving SRF in different capacities. I know when they do something, they always do it right mm. and perfect and they organize everything. In a, in a, and this is, this is like, if we wouldn't have had this during the pandemic, it would have probably taken a year to set it up. And then we could have ended up with like no convocation at all instead of having this fantastic online convocation mm. that we had instead. Mm. Yeah. That, that pretty much wraps up the minute. So, a very scientific uh, focus. I, I enjoyed it. Um, any last remarks from from you, Chris? I, I, th- I think, uh, Prank, you had a you had captured the quote that um, was uh, the Einstein quote. Um, yes. I don't know if you did you. Sh- did you share that? Did I miss No, that? she did it. She, I thought she might talk about it in her speech, but uh, yes, the Einstein quote is, one can best appreciate from a study of living things how primitive physics still is. So yeah, Anita Goel really talked about this, the limitations of each branch of science. Hmm. Profound. I feel like that sums up the minute perfectly. <laughs> On that note, thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Take care. Take care, everyone.